I think that was a fascinating point. Like I've never heard anyone just encapsulate that so well. The I explanation. It. I yeah. It. Um, I mean, and I, I mean, obviously it took you a long time. Do you think we've been talking for a while? <laughs> it has been such a good conversation and though. We're totally Thank not you so much for tuning in. That was, that was another T-Rex talk. I'm so glad that you were able to see all of that. And uh, we'll, we'll see you next week. Uh, yeah, that good, was uh, good chat, guys. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Everybody on board, way to go. Yeah, good, good, uh, good recording, you guys. I'm so glad that we didn't mess up the time change like last time. And uh, yeah, good, I'm, good I'm deal. actually just here to answer questions about Lucas. Um, uh, I'm here for those. Yeah, well, obviously, people in the chat are excited that you're here. They're not asking you any Lucas questions, though. So. Everyone's just saying my name. Yeah, John Level. Yo, there's hey, a yo, back, people. bro. Yo, back. Some people recognized your beard, so that's important. Yeah. I, you know, I just yeah. kind of follow it wherever it goes, you know? In all sincerity, guys, we did have an amazing talk, but unfortunately, uh, it wasn't captured on video. So you'll just have to speculate wildly as to the plans and the schemes. I hoped you would say schemes, and you did. You didn't disappoint. You followed it up. <laughs> All right. I, I actually yeah. can't stay, guys. I was hanging out with you guys. It's been too long since I've dropped by and seen you guys, so thanks. But I, I, I feel like answering one or two questions with you. Oh, sure. Let's uh, see. A really good Lucas question. Lucas-related. Uh, I don't see any Lucas questions, but someone's asking about when the ATF is going to take our body armor away. You can answer that one or your top 10 anime characters. As soon as, as soon as they possibly can. And I don't do anime because I'm a man. Yeah. I'm a grown man. Yeah. Yeah. People, everyone's like, people are bailing out of the chat. Now I'm like, oh, I'm anime. <laughs> hey, you get to like anime. That's totally cool. I just don't. And that's it. I, I like yeah. this jacket and this cool little microphone you gave me right here. Yeah. This is fantastic. I we put should, it on by myself. We should talk about video stuff. Not um, in front of the people. Um, uh, so I don't completely crash your live stream. And you're like, what happened to our analytics that day? I'm like, oh, John came in and screwed it all up. I'm going to bounce. Do you mind if I maybe borrow one or two tiny oh, goodies? So, and I'll let you guys yeah. uh, all hang out. Good stuff is on the left. Good stuff on the left. All right, I'm out. Guys, thanks so much. And always a pleasure, bro. You're welcome. Anytime. I'm out. Train hard, train smart. Stay free. Bye. Uh, we're going to do a regular uh, T-Rex talk now. Uh, we're going to talk about a bunch of information here. A bunch of people pestered me earlier that I didn't answer any questions. And I can see from the comment thread here that we're off to a really good start with questions. But I also want to talk a little bit about some of the recent uh, stuff that's been going on with the ATF. Obviously, we've had various comments uh, from Biden administration folks about new ATF regulations, ruling letters, uh, and, and uh, a nomination of a new ATF director. Now, interestingly, um, I'm actually in favor of there being an ATF director. And the reason for that is something that is... Uh, the reason for that is that I actually think there should be somebody who's a little bit accountable at that department. When you have an acting director, it's just kind of whoever's there by default. He doesn't have his job uh, quite on the line in the way that an actual appointed director does. So I actually feel like having an appointed director uh, could be a good thing. Now, the, uh, the nomination is, of course, not such a great option. David Chipman is the nomination. Uh, if you are on the T-Rex newsletter, then you got an email yesterday. Uh, yesterday, we sent out uh, in the email uh, an exclusive video talking about David Chipman, our thoughts on David Chipman, why he is not an ideal candidate for the ATF, unless, unless he's the perfect candidate for the ATF, because he's exactly the uh, insanely committed 97 percenter take guns from all of the common people person that uh, that the Biden administration wants, which is a possibility. If that is the case, then um, yeah, he's a perfect director. I see some folks saying that my mic is cutting in and out intermittently. Are you hearing that, Charles, or is that a YouTube thing? It was only on John's. Okay. Well, that I shouldn't use his mic. That's probably... Uh, that's probably the solution, not use his mic. So David Chipman, for those of you who know, uh, it is a very interesting thing that uh, he basically checks all of the boxes. He has been present at most of the ATF scandals. He's gone on to connect himself to uh, 
troubling, uh, let's just say troubling, <clears throat> some troubling and some incredibly false statements online and, and uh, on, on national television. And he's associated with hardcore gun control and gun confiscation um, organizations that are run by sitting politicians. So like everything about him demonstrates him to be uh, not the unbiased centrist that cabinet appointments are supposed to be, but in fact, like a really hardline uh, big government bureaucrat who, again, on his very own Twitter, which he locked, he locked his Twitter as soon as he was nominated so people couldn't comment on all the crazy things that he has tweeted in the past few years, but he left his Twitter bio that says that he's a proud 97 percenter. Uh, he is a loyalist. He is one of the one of the folks who decided to stand up with the Redcoats um, because he was a former Redcoat um, during the time. So yeah, now there is one thing about the video that we posted on Tuesday that I think is incorrect. We posted a picture of a guy in front of the smoking uh, ruins and charred corpses of the Branch Davidians. And uh, I'm beginning to think that that may not actually be David Chipman. Now there's no proof uh, that it is or that it isn't. Everyone's extremely quiet about it. It does look like him. He was there. Um, and the only reason I think that it might not be him is because the guy in the picture is holding a sniper rifle. And I feel like if David Chipman were a trained sniper, he would tell us about that fact all the time. So guy holding a sniper rifle, maybe not David Chipman. Or then again, maybe again, he just picked up the sniper rifle for the photo op because you got to hold a gun when you stand in front of the smoldering corpses of men, women, and children that uh, were burned to death. That's very important. So uh, yeah, so that is a, a potential correction to the video. I, I, I now kind of doubt that that picture is David Chipman, but there's a lot of very problematic things about David Chipman exactly the same way. Uh, there have exactly, uh, let me rephrase that. There's a bunch of problematic things about David Chipman that are as disturbing uh, as that picture. And one of them is just the fact that he was present when that happened. And uh, the way that the ATF handled the Waco situation, not only the siege, not only the fire, uh, not only the investigations afterwards, but basically everything uh, around the way that the Waco went down is incredibly problematic. The fact that they continually post um, about the ATF agents who were killed without any form of apology or acknowledgement that, uh, that 80 something other people, 82 other people were killed by the ATF and FBI is something that is problematic. So yeah. Yeah, I think that that is um, hugely problematic in many different ways. And I'm also being told that I shouldn't say problematic so much. My constant use of problematic is problematic. I, I agree, actually. Now, there's something else interesting about the ATF, which um, is very fascinating. They recently, uh, they didn't release this letter, but somebody leaked an ATF letter talking about potential rule changes. It's a 107 page document and I haven't read the whole thing because it just came out the other day. Um, can you remember who posted that first, Drew, whether it was Recoil or Ammoland? There's a bunch of people talking about it. It shouldn't be too hard to find, but uh, yeah, it's 107 pages of what they think the rules should be changed to. And I don't want to comment on that too much because they have some terrible ideas. They have some terrible, terrible ideas. And one of the things that I don't want to do is point out all of those terrible ideas and do all of their uh, proofreading for them. Not that I think that they're particularly watching this chat, although maybe, maybe they are. It's when you, uh, I have it on good authority that when you talk about burning uh, men, women, and children alive, various ATF agents and other regulatory and surveillance entities just suddenly appear in the chat. So, so maybe the ATF is watching and I don't want to give them a ton of input on their document, everything that is interesting and wrong about it. But there is one thing that is kind of interesting. One of the things that the ATF doesn't like is it doesn't like things that are not firearms that can easily be turned into firearms or firearms that are semi-automatic that can easily burn, be turned into fully automatic firearms. And the phrase that they generally use is, I believe, readily convertible, readily something. Uh, they're new, but that's never been defined. They've never defined what readily means or what easily means. Um, it's just vague. They actually have a definition now and their definition of something that is easily convertible or readily convertible is something that is, uh, 
it's, it's if you went into a machine shop and you spent eight hours of work on a thing, that means that it's readily convertible. If you can't, in a fully specced out, fully equipped machine shop, do a thing in eight hours of solid work, that's, that's their definition of easy. That's an easy con conversion or uh, readily convertible, which is kind of insane because we're not a fully specced machine shop. We are, uh, we're a holster making shop. We have a Haas machine. Um, and I was talking to some of the guys. We think that we could turn blocks of aluminum, 0% lowers, as they are called uh, in, the, uh, in the raw materials world. Uh, we think we can turn aluminum blocks into AR-15 lowers in about eight minutes of work. So that technically is what the ATF, the ATF would then have to assume that a block of aluminum can readily be converted into a firearm because it's less than eight hours of work to do so. So that's kind of an insane, uh, apparently the people who are writing that document have never worked in a machine shop or with tools or with metals. They have no idea what is actually easy or difficult to do. That's my assumption. <clears throat> Now, my goal with, with this, uh, I could talk about the ATF for so long. I was reading last night about the history of the ATF and the Treasury Department uh, enforcement stuff that began during uh, Prohibition in the year 1919. And it is, yeah, it's a pretty fascinating thing to study and to look at. And you learn an awful lot about, uh, let, let me just say, there's a level of consistency in the way that the revenuers and federals tried to enforce prohibition in the way that the ATF sees firearms today. There's continuity uh, between those things and, uh, and it's, not, it's not good, it's not great. But one of the things that I do want to do on this particular live stream is answer more questions. Um, every time that I have a more prepared live stream and I say that I'm gonna answer questions in it, I, uh, I do a pretty bad job of looking at questions as they come pouring in. There's a lot of questions about John Lovell for some reason. I wonder why that was. People were asking about John Lovell. I mean, he is my favorite YouTube channel, so I think about him a lot. I, I wouldn't be surprised if the chat thinks about him a lot as well. A lot of people talking about 76% uh, lowers, etc. Uh, people asking for T-Rex lowers. You know, we're, we're not in the business of making, uh, making AR-15 lowers, so we're not really set up to do it. And yet, I think we could do it in about eight minutes. I think it would be three setups. There's two tools that we'd have to buy. I might get a second set of Mighty Bites. Eight to 10 minutes per lower. Pretty straightforward. Easily convertible from raw materials. Blocks of aluminum into AR-15 lowers. The other thing that that ATF letter talks about is the very problematic definition of a firearm receiver that they have. The definition that is on the books of a firearm receiver that the ATF follows is the receiver is the device that holds the barrel, the bolt, and the hammer. This is problematic because uh, there is no part of the AR-15 that holds the barrel and the bolt and the hammer. There are separate things that hold those things. And then if you talk about different types of firearms, some of them don't even have hammers at all. So it's a very crummy definition. And they know that, they realize that, and there are judges now who are taking cases, ATF cases, and they're saying, look, your regulations do not describe the object that you are trying to bust this guy for. So that is an interesting and positive trend. The fact that they want to change that definition shows that they know that this is a problem. But until we actually know what they're changing it to, I don't know that we should do a huge amount of commentary directly on that wording because it's, it's a draft. It's a really early document. It's fascinating to see but like I said before, don't see a whole lot of reason to spend a whole lot of time uh, going over it uh, and giving them ideas of what needs to be fixed. Uh, here's a question. Should everybody buy a 3D printer? I want to say yes, but the answer is not everybody needs a 3D printer. But I would say that every group of people should have at least one 3D printer in that group. So I don't, uh, I don't think that everybody... In a, in a group needs to be a communications expert, but every group needs a communications expert. And every group needs somebody with a 3D printer who knows how to make parts. Um, and that is another point that I wanted to bring up, which is um, in many ways, the ship has sailed on uh, gun control. The ease of manufacture and 3D printing is just changes things completely. One of the fascinating lessons of prohibition is 
Prohibition completely and utterly and totally failed in every possible metric. It did not only not accomplish what it was supposed to accomplish, it accomplished the exact opposite of what it was supposed to accomplish. There was so much more liquor being manufactured, transported, and possessed and consumed during Prohibition than before Prohibition. It's just amazing. There were three times as many arrests for drunken disorderly contact. There were, there were far more speakeasies in Washington, D.C. than there had ever been licensed saloons, like a factor of three. In Massachusetts, it was like a factor of ten. Um, so Prohibition utterly and completely failed in every possible way. And I will tell you, I think it is easier to 3D print a firearm than it is to distill good moonshine. That's kind of an interesting observation about where we're at today. So I don't believe that you necessarily should have a 3D printer, but somebody in your circle of friends should have a 3D printer, should be experimenting with it now, and they're extremely cheap. You can get a almost like industrial level quality scene, or a 3D printer for 700-ish dollars, but for $200, for $250, you can get an Ender 3. Uh, there's a little bit more um, adjustment that's required. It's a little bit more finicky with the bed leveling and stuff like that, but that's what we have in the shop. That's what we use for development. And uh, yeah, I think that in your circle of friends, you should have somebody who takes an interest uh, or takes the responsibility of being the one to study some of this stuff out, get a 3D printer, learn how to use it, learn how to do a little bit of basic CAD modeling. Uh, I think that is an extremely important thing. Um, number of people throwing out interesting facts about prohibition and uh, distillery and moonshining. Yeah, that's a fascinating thing to study as well. At some point, we need to have Noah on and talk about distilling and moonshining because that is very important. Uh, we got a question here. Um, any books or articles looking at the Second Amendment and constitutional matters from the other side? That's an excellent question. I think that it is very important that we look at these issues from both sides um, for a couple of reasons. One of them is just simply we should know what the other side is saying. We should be prepared for the arguments that the other side has. We should know what the basic talking points are that are being thrown out there. And um, I don't have any particular recommendations. Um, there's a couple that are on my list that I want to read. There's one by a guy named Horowitz, and I forget who the second author is. And uh, they try to address some of the historical arguments and basically try to make the case that A... Uh, the militias uh, in the war for American independence weren't really a militias and they didn't really care about gun rights and blah, 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 blah. And then they also make some uh, comments about gun control after the Civil War and then also some comments about weapon confiscations in Nazi Germany and why, um, why that isn't what uh, Second Amendment people say that that was. And I will argue that it is important that we be precise. So one of the arguments that they have made in the past is uh, uh, that I, I have read is uh, Second Amendment supporters say that if uh, if Hitler hadn't disarmed the people, he never would have risen to power. And I think that's an imprecise and problematic statement. I think it is clear from what happened in Germany in the 30s that a lot of people really supported Hitler and an armed populace would not have stopped him from coming to power. But what an armed Jewish population would have stopped was a lot of the uh, of the genocide and the Holocaust. Would it have happened? Yes. Would there have been fewer casualties? Yes. Would they have been able to resist better? Yes. That is a much better argument to make than um, some kind of giant straw man argument. So uh, that is, I think, a very important thing, though. I'm glad that you brought that up. Now, the other thing that I would point out is the other side isn't doing much with books these days. The other side is primarily making arguments uh, against private ownership of weapons on television, on Twitter, on social media. Um, they're not so much in the books, but books on this topic are being written, and uh, so we should know about those things. Um, speaking of anti-2A, anti-private ownership of weapons comments, uh, another thing that bugs me about David Chipman's television interviews I'm not sure how much of his persona is playing dumb and how much of his persona is actually not understanding what he is talking about. So, for example, he was on a television show uh, in Texas and he made the point that, hey, everyone says that Gabby Giffords uh, and her anti-gun ownership um, 
He doesn't use the word anti-gun ownership, but Gabby Giffords and her organization are anti-gun. But of course they're not anti-gun. We're totally cool with guns. Last time we were in Texas, she was down here uh, to see a battleship being named after her. And that thing was covered with guns. So she's obviously cool with guns. And I don't know why people say she's not. Again, precision matters. Uh, I don't think anyone in the pro-2A community believes that totalitarian dictators or totalitarian dictator wannabes are anti-gun. They're very, very pro-gun. They're pro their private security details being armed. They're pro-state armament. They're only opposed to the private ownership of weapons. So that's a very important thing. And I'm sure that David Chipman does actually know that that is what we are talking about when we talk about being pro-gun or anti-gun. Uh, nobody that wants to have massive control over the population because they are in government, uh, wants the government to be disarmed. They are not anti-guns as inanimate objects or as tools. Um, they're, they're always very pro-gun and they're often very pro-gun violence uh, in a certain direction. Uh, a bunch of people asking what the ATF is because they're only aware of the AFT. Yes, excellent point. There's some confusion in the Biden administration about that. I also saw a quote from the Biden administration saying that something that Biden had said earlier was not the official position of the Biden administration, uh, which really makes you think and, and question. Um, what are your thoughts on 2A sanctuaries? So this is an excellent question, and it all depends on what the states that have declared themselves to be Second Amendment sanctuaries are willing to do to protect uh, their citizens. So there are a number of um, very promising trends when it comes to state firearm laws. Um, we are now up to, I believe, 20 states that have adopted either constitutional carry, full constitutional carry, or some form of permitless carry. Uh, and it's usually like one or two a year for the last few years. But in 2015, we had, uh, I believe, four states adopt constitutional carry. In 2021, we have had four states adopt constitutional carry or permitless carry so far, and it's currently being discussed in Texas. So we might see five, six, seven states potentially adopt constitutional carry or permitless carry this year alone. Uh, we could very easily see half of the states in the United States of America pushing back against um, the licensing of any type of carry, uh, which would be tremendous. And that definitely is the trend, whether that happens this year or next year is, um, who knows. In the next two or three years, we should have more than half of the states in the union with some form of constitutional or permitless carry. So there is a trend in that direction. There are trends where state governments are starting to push back against federal rules. Um, so that is a very interesting thing. Now, if a state says that it's a Second Amendment sanctuary, but it will not actually um, protect its people from red flag laws, uh, will not protect its people from confiscation orders, will not protect its people from things, will not actually stop uh, federal investigators and agents from coming down and doing certain things, then it's kind of meaningless. It's just lip service. But even lip service is helpful in one sense, as long as it doesn't make people, um, as long as it doesn't give people a false sense of security and make them lazy, that level of, of um, proclaiming yourself to be a Second Amendment sanctuary does definitely help move the needle. And so that's something where I really, really hope that uh, more states declare themselves to be Second Amendment sanctuaries, but also that they are willing to back it up and they're willing to tell their local law enforcement, do not enforce red flag laws, do not assist the ATF, do not allow this to happen, do not allow that to happen, do not use any of your resources for enforcing these particular federal laws. If that is actually going to happen, then those states are Second Amendment sanctuaries in fact, uh, not just in word. So, someone asking about thoughts on the Supreme Court refusing to hear Second Amendment cases. So I know that that happened a couple of times last year. I'm curious to see if that is still a trend, and I haven't really read up on anything particularly particularly recent. And so I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to have any hard data for that, but that is a, that is a problem if the Supreme court refuses to hear those cases, um, because that is a bunch of, uh, 
cowardly judges that do not want to rule one way or the other. So theoretically, we have a conservative Supreme Court right now because we have a bunch of Republican-appointed judges. I would like to point out that history has showed us that Republican-appointed judges are not necessarily behaving in a conservative way or ruling in conservative ways. This should be an opportunity for them to prove their conservatism by taking Second Amendment cases and ruling the right way on them. I think what often happens, though, is you get Republican-appointed judges who are expected to behave a certain way, but they really don't want the attention or the pushback. They're not brave enough to actually take conservative stances. So when they have a case, like a Second Amendment case, where their expected ruling uh, would make them uncomfortable, it's easier to just not hear it. So we'll just have to wait and see what that looks like in the future. That's been the way that the Supreme Court has acted on a number of occasions in the past. We do have some new judges, um, and I am curious to see what they look like. And um, another thing that is interesting that you guys have heard about is uh, the court packing conversations, which is another parallel from today uh, to prohibition times. Uh, FDR wanted very much to pack the Supreme Court and add a whole bunch of extra justices, uh, just like Joe Biden. Um, some of FDR's appointees and guys talked very much about defunding local police and replacing them with large uh, federal police force, just like people are talking about today. So uh, it's worth studying the past. There's a whole bunch of things that happened around prohibition that I believe are going to be, they're going to rhyme with stuff that is happening today, in my opinion. Um, here's someone saying, I'm getting started. I'm moving towards starting a business within the gun industry. Should I still apply for my FFL with what's going on? That's an excellent question. I would say, yes, I still think that you should, um, pursue this. And I think that you should prepare, um, to be involved in this industry in a way that is helpful. Now there are some downsides with having an FFL, um, but there's also some upsides to it. And in my personal experience, um, the ATF agents that I have been involved with who are involved in the actual regulatory work of the, the ATFE, visiting gun shops, checking paperwork, that sort of thing, um, far less tyrannical and easier to deal with um, than the enforcement and dog elimination squad types. So... It depends entirely on what you're trying to accomplish in the industry. If you need an FFL to accomplish certain things, <clears throat> then make sure that you're accomplishing those things that will benefit the community and benefit the country. Um, but just bear in mind exactly what that means, because um, there's downsides to it as well, obviously. There's downsides to a lot of different things. At some point, I want to do a stream where we just talk pure business stuff, because being involved with T-Rex over the last few years has been really educational from a business perspective. And I, I want to be real clear. T-Rex is doing business on easy mode. <laughs> we are in a sector <clears throat> of, the, uh, of, the, of the economy where it's pretty easy to do business. We have way better customers than a bunch of other industries. We are in middle Tennessee where the cost of living is low and there, um, the cost of property is low. There's a lot less regulation or enforcement than certain places on the coast. In many ways, <clears throat> we are uh, we're doing business on easy mode, and yet there are still so many hurdles and difficulties. Uh, as as you are a growing company, you grow into certain categories of oversight and infringement that are very interesting, and uh, just make your work much 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 harder. So, yeah, any any type of business that you are doing um, is something that. Uh, you need to weigh the pros and the cons because there are tremendous pros or tremendous cons and even growing business business the same way. I, I, I do wonder sometimes um, if T-Rex isn't like the, the ideal size and rather than grow T-Rex, we should start other businesses that don't get too big. It's a question that I've had is I've uh, pondered different amounts of compliance and paperwork uh, categories that we suddenly find ourselves falling into because of how many employees we have, or various other metrics that the government looks at. Uh, what should my county do if our sheriff does not fight off infringements from the feds and ATF? Uh, you should elect a new sheriff. You should be able to, um, if you know that your sheriff will not stand up for you and will not defend your constitutional rights and will not keep the oath um, that he took when he became the sheriff, then you should really be finding another sheriff. You should be working right now. I don't know when your elections are, but you should be working right now to find a new candidate 
and supporters for that new candidate. That's something that you should be doing right now. Um, that's the way that we should be dealing with all of the people who are are holding legitimate office, um, which, which sheriffs are, and not upholding their oaths, which they are required to do. Now, there's other government people who are holding offices that are really unnecessary. And um, th those, those offices should be downsized. So I'm not saying that we replace everybody in government with somebody better. A lot of government can be downsized. Um, but those important, required, um, constitutionally valid offices need to be... Um, those need to be held by people who will uh, take their oaths seriously and do what is right. So be looking for candidates um, in all of the different positions in your local community because that's where you can actually begin to make some of these changes. Uh, all these gun control scares are designed to sell more guns, not confiscate them. The feds do nothing by accident. Well, I would agree with you that uh, they probably know what is happening, but the feds do a lot of things completely by accident because um, the level of incompetence in giant bureaucracies is staggering. That's the other thing that you learn when you read about prohibition. Uh, staggering levels of incompetency and inability to predict what cause and effect are going to be. Um, so, <clears throat> well, I, I don't want to say that um, there's no such thing as conspiracies. Uh, there's also people who conspire and then end up being incompetent and inept at putting their conspiracies into effect. Um, what is a good camera system for home monitoring? That's an excellent question. I, I do know that uh, the Unify uh, camera system was pretty good for, um, for a lot of different reasons, but I also have heard that quality has kind of dropped off a little bit lately, so I, I need to do some more research on that. But you could research Unify as a starting point. How do you all feel about nuclear weapons? Feel great. How about you, Charles? Do you feel great about nuclear weapons? as long as the radiation is maintained you know yeah i mean you you do need to they have a half-life so you you do need to keep topping them up with the right materials so that they so that they are are functional i don't know what else to say about nuclear weapons i mean they, they require maintenance it's 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 just a thing I, I feel like they're a pretty good option as long as you can commit to doing the required maintenance yeah and the silos here in here in tennessee we have a pretty high water table so silo flooding is an issue little hard to deal with. Uh, someone asking for more children's books recommendations. Uh, we'll, we'll get to more book recommendations. The problem is you guys are reading books faster than I am, so it's hard for me to get you uh, <laughs> book recommendations that quickly. I have, I have a lot of stuff to do uh, here at the shop that doesn't, uh, doesn't leave much time for reading books. Do you think that Firearm Policy Coalition is the new NRA? Do you believe they'll continue to actually fight for us? I think that the fact that they're filing lawsuits is a very good sign. I think Gun Owners of America has an excellent track record, um, and we should continue to support Gun Owners of America. Um, NAGR is, uh, I know that they, they're very divisive within the community. People have a lot of different opinions about them, but I think that they've actually accomplished some stuff. F, um, the Firearm Policy Coalition is newer. They don't have as much of a track record, but so far they're filing lawsuits and they're winning cases, and that is something that I feel much better about putting uh, my money into than uh, tote bags. Is gunsmithing still a viable career option with everything going on? Oh, I think gunsmithing is becoming a far more viable career option than it ever has been. Uh, I think that's a pretty future-proof job right there, particularly because you will be able, as someone who could do gunsmithing work, um, if you learn some other additional machining and engineering stuff, there's all kinds of stuff that you can do in the future. Uh, I think that is a tremendous opportunity, um, but don't just go to um, one of the gunsmithing courses that teach you how to do random 1911 customizations. Do some engineering and some machining stuff for the purpose of actually making firearms and firearm parts, because if you can do that, you can do a lot of other stuff. Um, something that is, uh, is very interesting to remember, um, Eli Whitney invented a lot of modern machining principles when trying to build guns. So... There's, there's good reason for firearm manufacturer to be kind of a engineering baseline. If you can do that uh, with the precision and reliability that firearms require and 
the tolerances and tensions and just difficulty that firearm manufacturing engineering is, if you can do that and hold those tolerances and that quality and that reliability, then you can do other stuff too. So it's a good standard to hold yourself to. Wow, here's, a, here's an interesting question. Do you think that felons should be able to regain their ability to own firearms once their debt to society is paid? So this is a complicated question. The answer is yes, I believe absolutely they should. But I think that while fixing this broken part of our uh, legal system, I think we also need to fix a bunch of other parts. So there's several problems with the way that we currently do things. And one of them is in the question itself. Most felons, or uh, let, let's be more specific, most criminals, people that have, have, uh, who have actually committed crimes, have not injured society. They have injured specific people. They have injured specific victims. Their debt is to those specific victims. That's not something that we currently address for the most part. We throw them in a cage and they pay their debt to society. And I, I disagree with that, that concept. That isn't justice. The victim is never actually made whole. The guy usually never actually makes any form of restitution. It's just he gets a long time out in a box and then he has paid his debt to society. And I don't believe in that kind of collectivism. I don't believe that that is actually true justice. But if we assume that that is uh, that the debt is now paid, then he should be the case should be closed, uh, the books are taken care of. Now he should be reinstated. Uh, and then if he's done something really terrible, that's what some of the people in the comments are surely saying now. But what if he did something super terrible? Well, if he did something super terrible, then there are other penalties uh, involving ropes or uh, firing squads that ensure that these guys don't get their um, firearm capabilities back. Uh, and that's the way that some of the horrific crimes that you guys are mentioning in here, that's the way that some of those things can be dealt with. So I think that we need massive sentencing and legal reform in order to deal with this thing. But yeah, if you have actually paid your debt, either to society or better yet, the specific victim that you have harmed, that should be handled. It should be taken care of. There should be a level of forgiveness inside of the legal system. And the way that it's currently set up, there isn't, and there can't be. And the assumption is that there can never be. So that is, we're going about things in a problematic way to begin with, which makes it difficult to answer these questions about within the current system and within the current society that we live in, should we just give felons guns uh, when they, when they get out of lockup? So, but that is, that is an excellent question to be contemplating, but I think we should be willing to go deep, 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 deep into um, the presuppositions of how we do justice when we answer this question and not just look at a bunch of statistics on reoffending and whatnot. There's so many questions, you guys. I'm, I'm very encouraged by a lot of the questions that are in here, and yet I find it very hard to keep up with them. I, I want to thank the CS guys. There's some CS guys watching, and they're pulling good questions for me. It's almost like I have my own Bow Snerdly producing. What would you say to someone that has an engineering background and wants to work in the firearms industry when there are no such companies nearby? That's an excellent question. Now, I would like to clarify that I am neither a true engineer, um, nor is T-Rex, even though we're in the firearm industry, we're, we're not actually manufacturing firearms. So if that is your interest or your passion, you should find somebody that knows more about that, ask, ask his questions. But one of the things that I would say is, 2021 is a crazy year, and it's it's uh, it looks like it's going to keep being crazy. It appears that perhaps things are not going back to normal as uh, as everyone promised, and there are a number of things that you might want to consider uh, related to relocating. Um, there are a number of companies in the firearms industry that are relocating for various reasons, and I don't know your situation, but that is a consideration that possibly um, should be on your radar. Uh, that is, that is uh, yeah, that's a hard question to answer. I would say that if you, have, if you have real practical skills, you should have ways of, uh, of capitalizing on those. But if you want to work for specific companies or in specific industries, you may need to go certain places because I, I am confident, uh, we've already seen this happen in the past, but I'm confident that it's going to be very difficult if you live in a place where it's difficult for firearm companies to be in business, um, they're, they're not coming back anytime soon. And uh, there are a number of states that are trying to make it even harder for firearm companies to be in business uh, within those states. So if 
that's where you really want to be, that that's something that you have to consider. Uh, what is the practicality of putting a radio repeater on a drone instead of a tower or a hill? Ah, oh, it's, it's actually kind of awesome. Now, a lot of radio repeaters are very big and heavy and they have to carry large antennas, but some of the smaller digital mesh networking type things, uh, I have actually, oh, your, your, the second part of your question is whose authority would this fall under, the FAA or the FCC? Well, it kind of depends if you're allowed to run the repeater, then you're allowed to run the repeater. And if you're allowed to fly a drone, then you're allowed to fly the drone. So you shouldn't be falling afoul of any new laws. So I have, I've actually done this before with a Gotenna mesh uh, device tied to a DJI drone. And uh, yeah, works awesome. You get your line of sight, you get your flexibility, uh, you get to use the camera on the drone to look around and see stuff. So it's kind of nice. This is a very interesting thing to, to tinker with. There's a whole bunch of new possibilities that exist in the communications world. And one of my frustrations with the ham radio community, well, actually it's not with the ham radio community so much as with the FCC. The FCC has a bunch of uh, very old, like from the Hoover administration rules about what amateur radio looks like and what amateur radio can do. And there's been, you know, I haven't counted, but there have been a few advances technologically since the Hoover administration um, till today in the radio and digital communication space. And the FCC rules for amateur radio do not allow for some of those things to be done in the amateur bands. So that is a frustration to me. There's a whole bunch of very cool digital networking and mesh forwarding and remote control station stuff that you're technically not allowed to do on amateur bands that would be fascinating to play with. And other people uh, in the commercial space and industrial space and government space are doing some of these things. And it's, uh, it's something that would be really important to, um, it would be something that would be really important to get clarified and, and freed up in the FCC so that we are, are actually allowed to be a little more cutting edge in our radio experiments, which is kind of the purpose of amateur radio in the first place. Amateur radio guys are supposed to be doing the experiments in the amateur space that turn into innovations uh, for the other parts of, uh, of the, of the world and economy. So we, we need kind of need some of those freedoms back in order to do some of those things. Oh, here's some interesting questions, but I don't know if I really want to open this, this can of worms. A lot of questions about braces, a lot of questions about starting businesses that exist almost entirely to work around loopholes within ATF regulations. These are excellent questions. Now, one thing that I would say is it appears that the ATF is willing to be completely arbitrary about things. So your safety and tenability as a company producing a product that the ATF may decide that they don't like, I would say that that danger kind of exists regardless of whether or not you're playing close to the edge or not. Um, you could be somebody like Polymer 80. You could be doing something that is clearly defined as okay. You could be doing something that it has great precedent and years of people doing this with no problems and the ATF still in an arbitrary way crack down upon you and have some new interpretation of the rules um, to explain why they're doing this. So I feel like that can happen to basically anybody at any time. So um, I don't know how to answer your question because I feel like everybody is under roughly the same amount of threat and that is... Um, that is a reason to be fast and agile as a company. Uh, as far as what's going to happen with braces, um, on the one hand, I think that <laughs> I think that the ATF um, the ATF made what I was kind of surprised by a very clear and simple um, ruling on on braces back in the SB brace times, back in the SIG brace days. Um, because why not? The, the actual NFA rules about SBRs are kind of dumb anyway, so there's no reason not to allow braces. Um, and now I think there's a bunch of people who don't like that decision. They really dislike how incredibly popular and prevalent AR-15s are with, um, with shorter barrels and suppressors and things like that. And I think that there's a bunch of people in government that do not like that, and they're blaming that on braces. Now, I actually feel like the popularity and prevalence of the AR-15 platform would have happened with or without braces, that few inches of uh, shorter barrel and slightly less muzzle velocity is 
kind of cool and folding braces are very cool. But I think that the, the proliferation of those rifles would have happened regardless. Oh, I'm sorry, I meant pistols. The proliferation of those pistols would have happened regardless. They just would have been rifles with slightly, slightly longer barrels. So the ATF or the ATF's uh, lords and masters having a major problem with this um, they're blaming a lot of stuff on braces that I don't think are braces fault. And then when they talk about how incredibly dangerous braces are, they're talking about something that, you know, just doesn't quite compute. But I think that there is going to be uh, some level of war on braces, and it's going to be very difficult to do from a legal perspective just because there are so many million braces already in people's hands. So a broad brush ruling is going to make millions of Americans instant felons. And that is, that is a, that's just going to be really hard to swing. Um, now it could be that there are some federal judges that are totally willing to go out on that limb, but, uh, it's, it's going to be a huge deal. It's going to be a much bigger deal than I think a lot of people think that it is from uh, a number of perspectives. Uh, do you think that exploiting ATF loopholes is a productive way of furthering the two-way cause? Uh, yes and no. I, I don't think that, um, let's just say pistol braces. I don't think that pistol braces did very much to undermine uh, the ATF in the way that, say, um, challenging them in court, suing them and taking them to court does. But on the other hand, um, it got a bunch of people thinking and experimenting with bad guns in a way that left them far better prepared and equipped um, so in that sense, it, it did further the Second Amendment cause because we have a lot more privately owned weapons in people's hands um, in a certain configuration. Now, again, I just said I don't know how much uh, the pistol braces increased ownership of AR-15s, but it increased ownership of AR-15s um, in, a, in, a, in a sector or it increased people thinking about uh, thinking about bad guns in a way that they weren't before. So I think that it helps in that sense. Uh, and even, even though there's not a ton of people, you know, we have millions of people that have braces. I don't think we had tens of millions of people that bought braces, but we did have tens of millions of people that watched YouTube and Instagram videos of people running braces and keeping AR-15s in bags and thinking, huh, it's kind of cool. I want to do that someday, or that's an option, or this is a consideration for the future. So in that sense, I think it, it definitely helped the Second Amendment cause. Uh, should you go out and buy a bunch of braces now? Yeah, I mean, why not? There's no reason not to go out and buy braces now. I can't think of any reason not to buy braces now. I can think of a lot of reasons to own more braces now, if they're in stock. Are braces in stock, Chad? Do you know? There's almost nothing in stock, you guys. I, I bought one uh, just last week. Okay, well, if, if you can find... I mean, at this point, there are certain sections of the industry where I would say, if you can find something that's in stock, you should just buy it. It kind of doesn't really matter what it is. You should kind of just buy it. Tax swap, uh, if you're looking for them. Yeah, so should you sell your braces? Oh, you should not sell your braces. Unless you have a 3D printer and you can make more braces, then you should sell your braces. Oh, wait, did I say that out loud? Yeah, you should probably... You should probably um, you should probably be able to make firearm accessories. I think that's a really important thing to be able to do. And I'm not even talking about from a uh, non-compliance perspective. I'm just saying there's a ton of stuff that is out of stock right now. You should be able to make firearms accessories because the demand is incredibly high. If you're a fast, agile company, there's tremendous opportunities to take advantage of. Uh, I would like to get braces, but my dentist seems like kind of a creep. That's, you know, that's always a thing to think about. You can 3D print your own braces or your own Invisalign, and then you don't have to deal with the dentist. So that's an option. Um, what to do when our neighbors are not on our side? Uh, I guess it sort of depends on what level of not on your side um, they are. If your neighbors are in any way friendly or in any way uh, open to friendliness, I think that you should show them tremendous friendliness and care and love. Christians are required to love not only their enemies, uh, but also their neighbors. So I think that that's a really important thing. Um, I live in Tennessee, so I have neighbors who are, um, well, a spectrum, but most of them are very happy with the fact that T-Rex is a gun company and that, uh, and that I own firearms. They're completely okay with that. But I also have neighbors that are uncomfortable with that. And uh, it's very... 
it's very easy for us to be friendly with them about other things. And that's something that, uh, that we are doing. And I think that's something that you should do as well. You, your neighbors should be on your side about some things because you should be on your neighbor's side. Um, and part of the reason that you own firearms is to protect your neighbors. So you, your neighbors should know that you are on their side, regardless of, of where they sit. And, and hopefully that kind of, of, of care and friendliness uh, is something that either heaps burning coals on their head or wins them over. Um, and, and you need to do the right thing regardless of, of, of the way that they treat you. So that, I think, is important um, for us to remember. Hard, hard, to, hard to do sometimes, but important to remember and important to strive towards. Um, there's someone saying that they're in Seattle. Um, the governor, mayor, city council, and good chunk of the liberal socialists are against me, so I guess I'm going to move to Texas. I mean, if you cannot get any of your neighbors on your side, I have to say, I would not live in some of those states. Um, I wouldn't want to raise my family there. That's always an important consideration. It's a hard call. It's a very difficult call, but I think it's extremely important to talk about. Oh, here's an excellent question. How to balance being an ambassador for guns while also maintaining OPSEC? That is a fantastic question. In the context of how you interact with your neighbors, this question relates to what you tell your neighbors about what you own or why you own it. Um, but this is also a bigger question that I struggle with sometimes as I think about... Uh, Okay, so we have 2,000 people watching this live stream right now. I have the tremendous opportunity that I value immensely to be uh, some kind of ambassador for guns in front of 2,000 people right this second on YouTube. Um, it's a tremendous opportunity, but I'm sacrificing significant operational security by doing so. I do not recommend that everybody do what I am doing. The level of transparency that I am having with you right now about what I believe and what I hold to and what is in the shop behind me. Um, I don't recommend that everybody do what I am doing, but I believe that some people need to be ambassadors um, and, and, and really put themselves out there and, and do the risky thing of being open and putting targets on their front and their back. And then there's other people that, that should not do that. We shouldn't all have targets on our back. So that is something that is very, um, that's a very hard question. And I, I wonder about this. I do things like um, on my Instagram channel, I occasionally post pictures of my children because I want the people watching my Instagram channel to be encouraged about the hope that I have for the future and the way that I'm integrating um, my children into family life and church life and business life and, and the books that I'm reading to them. And yet at the same time, not everybody should do that. I think that I am opening myself up to risk and I hope that the positive reward balances that out. But uh, just because I have kind of bit that bullet and stepped off into the deep end of being that, um, that open about things, um, because of the reach that T-Rex has and the opportunity that, that exists because of so many of you watching, uh, doesn't mean that everybody should. And so this is, this is going to be a more difficult question in the future. Um, I mean, right now, if I started talking to you about various medical procedures that have to do with various viruses and uh, various inoculation types, oh, should I have said that word? Like stuff might pop up on your screen and this video might be pulled. Like there's certain things that you're not allowed to talk about on certain platforms. Um, in certain countries, in America, if you say certain things on YouTube, you lose your YouTube channel. In certain countries, if you say certain things on Twitter, cops come to your door. So these are things that you have to balance very carefully. Um, and these are things that you really need to be, be wise about. And hopefully the opportunity that we have uh, at T-Rex to speak to a large number of people um, is something that we do well. And, and hopefully the openness and transparency about what we own and what we believe in and what we're willing to do um, is an encouragement to people without exposing our families to too much risk. But that doesn't mean that you have to do exactly the same thing or carry the same amount of risk. So really think about that. Um, Here's somebody says, see you in the gulags 10 years from now. Yeah, I mean, 
I hear we're all going to re-education camps. I hope they're like summer camp. We'll, uh, we'll see. Is it worth self-censoring? Um, it's a good question. Depends on who you are and what you are doing. Personally, I am um, wanting to use this YouTube channel for as much as possible for as long as we have it, which is why there are certain messages that don't go up on YouTube, um, but we do put other places. So technically, uh, I wouldn't say that we're self-censoring. We're just putting different messages on different platforms. And hopefully we're being strategic about that, but uh, we'll see. Uh, risk assessment is vital. Yes, very important. Um, risk assessment is extremely important. Um, not only, not only in this area, but lots of areas. Um, uh, Isaac, how do you interpret the render unto Caesar verse? Um, oh, that's an excellent, excellent question. Um, I should probably open that verse up and read it, but basically the Pharisees are trying to outfox Jesus. They're trying to get him to say something that the people do not like. And so they ask him um, who they should pay taxes to because uh, if he says one thing, the people will be angry. And if he says the other thing, then the Roman soldiers will be angry. And they're trying to get people angry at Jesus one way or the other. And he says to the people, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render unto Caesar, uh, render unto God the things that are God's. And it says that all the people were amazed by his answer. And it's easy to just read over that and be like, yep, cool. Um, but people were amazed. And so Jesus said something amazing. And I think what was amazing to people is this. What Jesus was saying in that moment was that there were things that belonged to Caesar, but there were also things that belonged to God. So Caesar's jurisdiction was limited. Um, so he did not say what a lot of the um, a lot of the insurrectionist types wanted, which was there is no legitimate authority in the world. And he didn't say what some of the uh, redcoats wanted, which was Caesar is the ultimate authority. He said Caesar is an authority, but his authority is limited, and the people were amazed by that. Um, so that is uh, that is an important thing to study. And I haven't seen too many commentators. Uh, recent modern commentators address that that way. They kind of skim over it and move on to other stuff. Um, so, so Jesus was saying that Caesar was an authority. Uh, the institution of his government was a thing that had to be respected, but there were limits to it, and that God has claims over authority that uh, that exist regardless of what Caesar says. So, yeah. At what point do you consider something as tyranny? Well, lots of things are tyranny. Uh, a bigger question is at what at what level do you put back push back against tyranny? There's another interesting um, verse where where somebody asks Peter whether or not Jesus pays the temple tax, and Jesus uh, and, and Peter says, "Of course," and then he goes and asks Jesus, and Jesus says uh, basically. No, but uh, we're not. It's not necessary. But in order to not give offense, uh, you and I are going to pay the tax. I think that there are times and places. Like I think that a lot of the taxes that we're currently paying are insanely unjust, and yet paying them so that you don't go to jail, so that you can fight back uh, against tyranny and protect your neighbors in other ways. That's the sort of decision that you have to make. Um, I don't think that. Fighting for justice is this binary thing where as soon as there's a merest hint of injustice, you immediately jump to the nuclear option. Uh, how are those nuclear missiles doing, Charles? Half-Life still hanging in there? Still still enough mass? Critical, critical material levels? Yeah, just checking. Yeah, that's, that is an interesting question. And um, this is why you have to have a standard. This is why it's very important that you have a standard um, that you can stick to so that your definition of tyr tyranny doesn't just change uh, as the winds blow in different directions and your definition of resistance and justice doesn't go all squidgy um, when it's a different guy getting in trouble than, than your guy. Uh, first thing we should do is all immediately stop paying taxes. 
Hmm. I mean, it's it's definitely something that uh, the government should stop taking so much of our money. That is absolutely for sure. Are we allowed to be tax resistors? I mean, like we're allowed to be. Protests are very popular now. There's there's a bunch of elected officials thanking people for their protests. So tax protests, just another kind of uh, protests, you know, right right up there with uh, burning down, burning down the Apple Store. Did you see that Apple Store, Charles? Yeah. I saw they filmed it on their iPhones. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, it was kind of interesting. People set fire to the Apple store, which had a mural of George Floyd in it, actually. And then they filmed it on their iPhones so that they could virtue signal on uh, social media. Yeah. We live in uh, a world that makes a lot of sense if you don't think about it. Uh, has there been any advancement with the ATAC and radio systems since the video? Um, so in, in the video that I made on ATEC, I asked, um, people with programming experience to put their heads together, um, and a bunch of people have, and they have been tinkering and experimenting and, uh, there, there's no product out of that. The other thing that's happened is I've been extremely busy with T-Rex stuff, so I've done less research, but there's a whole bunch of interesting developments with Meshtastic and LoRa and other Internet of Things, um, uh, devices um, there are some new HF radios out like the ICOM, uh, 705. Like there's a whole bunch of stuff that would be really interesting to play with in this space that I haven't had time, uh, for, but there is no super cool new ATAC, uh, competitor that T-Rex Arms has released without you hearing about it. That, that has not happened. You're not missing, uh, you're not missing much on that front. I'm afraid we haven't had a chance to do much, but, uh, yeah. That's something that we should all be working on. Radio communication is extremely important for a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, and so knowing about that is important. Um, and one of the things that I think is really important, going back to this conversation about community and neighbors, um, having people to talk to and uh, being able to talk to them in times where other communication is restricted is a very important thing. I think that we all know that, but uh, be be clear that that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about uh, handheld radios that are fun for LARPing. Um, Baofengs fill the bill there. We're talking about radio communication so that people can stay in touch with each other during emergencies when other communications is not available. Uh, be that a natural disaster or a man-made disaster, those are the solutions that need solving. Um, short range, handheld radio communication with your buddies, easy problem to fix. Um, so, yeah. The fall of all great civilizations has been over taxation. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, so this is a complicated uh, topic and it's been written about quite a bit. Uh, I believe that the government is a legitimate institution, but it has significant limits. Because it's a legitimate institution that has costs, it needs to get revenue somehow. So some level of support for that very small uh, instituted government um, needs to be there. However, once the government decides that it's going to be bigger than that, it needs more money. And once it decides that it gets more money, it can be bigger and then it can give some money to some of the people to vote certain people in. And then it's like, uh, it's, it's like an entity that is drinking its own blood. There's, there's not positive growth at that point. Um, it's not productive. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't really work. Um, once you get, once you get into that thing, it's like a Ponzi scheme. It's like a giant, it's like a giant pyramid. Well, I, I haven't been paying attention to the time because I've been trying to watch the, uh, watch the questions, but that's been a that's been a good hour, including the time that we had a guest earlier. Uh, I want to thank um, all of you guys for watching and for listening. I'd like to um, I'd, I'd like to close with just an interesting observation. Even though we're we're looking at at difficult times, and 2021 is uh, turning out to not be the year that everything goes back to normal as we were promised. Um, we, we've touched on a bunch of things that I think are really important. Uh, the questions that you guys are asking are, are the really important questions about interacting with neighbors, um, getting local government to stand up for what is right, um, and what to do about encroaching tyranny. One of the things that is, is fascinating to me as we read the new documents coming from the ATF, 
seeing what the current administration is expecting the ATF to be doing and who they want to be in charge of those activities. Um, it, it's pretty clear that a lot of the gloves are coming off. But again, we are seeing some pretty good trends uh, at the state level. We are seeing an awful lot of, of pushback from the states in certain areas. And um, that is something that we should be supporting and, and integrating ourselves into. I think that now is a really important time for us to look to uh, getting to know our neighbors better and getting to know our local representatives better and being more involved in those local governments um, for, for a lot of different reasons. So my recommendation to you is to um, figure out how to get to know your neighbors. In some states, it's harder than others because you're not allowed to leave your house. You're not allowed to talk to people without a mask. You're not allowed to go certain places. But if you can make, um, make those important connections, um, then you have a lot of, of forward, uh, you have a lot of options that are available to you. If you can build connections and make, make human relationships happen within your local community, then you can do things like know whether or not you can trust your sheriff. And you can do things like know who in your community would be a better sheriff. And then you will have a, a good to-do list of things to work on after that. So I think that's an incredibly important thing for us to be working on now. And those of you who are interested in uh, knowing whether you should get into firearm industry at a time of potential encroaching ATF regulation, I would say the answer is yes. Demand is only going to be going up. Opportunities to work in this space are uh, potentially very, very, very helpful to other folks. So I would say definitely look into it. But at the same time, realize that the level of demand we have now may not be totally consistent and the difficulties and costs uh, are potentially significant. So do that risk assessment. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely, definitely consider it. Um, we're not planning on leaving this industry. Uh, we're planning on sticking with, with what we're trying to accomplish and, uh, and our goal of inspiring, educating, and equipping people. Um, so thank you so much for your questions. Um, they really are extremely helpful for helping us determine what uh, that inspiring, educating, and equipping um, should look like from us. So I really appreciate um, you guys hanging out for so long and pitching so many questions. Uh, and thanks to the CS guys for picking good ones for me to answer. Uh, and thanks to the CS guys for uh, all the good CS. Uh, the customer service of T-Rex really is the most important part of what we do. And um, I hope we're not just saying that. I hope that we're actually continuing to grow in that area. But based on the feedback that we're getting from you guys, um, I think they're doing a phenomenal job. So thanks so much for that. Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you next week where maybe we'll have a topic. Maybe we'll have a guest. Maybe we'll have to uh, do some maintenance on those nuclear weapons, Joe. Yeah. See you then.